it's Rick and friends. Hi, this is Rick Madison, and uh, today we have a guest that uh, many of you will know. He's moved throughout the community. Nobody really knows everything that he does, so hopefully today we're going to shed some light on that. Uh, Dominic Ramponi, welcome to the big show. Oh, thank you very much, and I like the way you worded it, big show. I think that's appropriate <laughs> in listening to some of the your uh, podcast over there it is a big show you've got some really interesting people on so i feel honored to be part of that group oh thanks so much dominic uh so do you prefer dom or dominic i get called a lot of things but mostly dom (laughs) (laughs) so dom you you carry around uh what i would call a a paper daytimer yes so is that based on anything? Like, does that keep the day straight and everything else? Without Pretty well, because sometimes uh, I find out that with a paper, I'm kind of old school in that regard, I can write notes easier than I can if it was on my phone. Right. Like if you're in a meeting, you jot something, then you relate to that day's meetings or something jogs your memory. So I, I really like doing it that way. People think I'm a little bit uh, uh, mature uh, <laughs> <laughs> when, when I have that, but... Uh, uh, I find it a, a good vehicle. So, so it's interesting that you jot down the notes, and it's seen as courteous to do it versus picking up your phone and tapping in a note. And that, that's what I find in a in a business meeting. Totally, and and uh, people uh, I think appreciate that that you're 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 not you know you can still somewhat write and look at somebody, but on your phone is pretty difficult. So, uh, and I always try to to uh, uh, engage. Uh, with the people, and I like to uh, build that relationship, find out why they came to Kelowna or, or why they're here and that. It adds to the uh, discussion of whatever topic or whatever industry we're talking into. I, I find you are an excellent, and I wouldn't even say a networker because that's not who you are. Like I, When I think of networker, and, and this is just in my eyes, somebody who moves throughout the community to build connections, to build business, you you are based more on courteousness and, and friendliness. Like, I mean, you called me one day and said, Rick, I, I'd love to meet you and, and have coffee. And, <laughs> and uh, I, you know, it was, it was an honor for me because, oh, you. you know, you reached out and you were genuine about it. And uh, I, I really wanted to, to meet this guy because, uh, again, I hear your name in different parts of the city. And I thought, by all means, I'll have coffee. And we had a lovely time. Oh, it was a great time. Yeah. And, and we've had coffee since then. So l- let's just give... For many those that, for some reason, may not know all the things that Dom is up to, let's just kind of go through all the things that, that you are involved with, because I know there's the list is long. So I'll, I'll start with a little bit of history of our family, because it really adds to the things I've been involved with. In uh, our great, My great-grandfather, Luigi Ramponi, came to Kelowna in 1893 on a recommendation from his best friend and uh, that had land right beside him in Italy was Giovanni Casorso. So he called him over and said, there's land of opportunity here. So he came over here, and there was a land of opportunity. So after he'd, he'd been here a few years, he bought a piece of property. And I'll tell you the story because you can visualize how he took advantage of the opportunity that Canada gave him. So it was alfalfa field. We had a fruit stand in Gordon for a number of years, and he, he had owned a property next door. So in... You know, he had farmed it for a few years, 1919, World War One, and he took home a check from the co-op uh, for $19,000 for growing 27 acres of onions. That's a lot of money in mm-hmm. 1919. So mm-hmm. he, he was a good farmer and all that. So after that, he called his two sons over, and he he called, his wife didn't want to come. She didn't get along too good with this Luigi Ramponi guy. So he called his two sons, my grandfather and Camillo Ramponi, so, and then they started farming, and they won awards for uh, the best dairy cows, the best alfalfa. Like, they were true. It was in their heart to uh, to go into farming. So then uh, when uh, my dad, my dad was born here, too. So he worked on the farm, and, and then he went to work in the post office. But he was really the one that got involved with a lot of the community stuff the historical society, he was a city alderman for a little bit, but really entrenched in in wanting to know uh, or make a contribution to the city. So after, when I went to, uh, I graduated from Maclea High School and then went to Okanagan College and got a diploma in business administration, got hired at the regional district, and I worked there as an accountant for 35 years. 
But at that time, sort of did everything. It looked after dog complaints, mosquito complaints, SIR. I mean, it wasn't just accounting. So I really, and all the farmers, if they had an issue, they, because of my farming background, they'd come in and lend, and lend their ear. So I was kind of really involved in the community there. So then, um, you know, I, I got involved, well, even in high school, which I think, I, I would hope the city of Kelowna and city of West Kelowna and Lake Country would do the same thing. In high school at that time, the city of Kelowna had uh, high school committees. They had one for the arena, one for the airport. Really? Yeah, so at two or three times a year, you'd get together at this high school group with one of the city staff. It was Jack Simons. He passed away now, but he was... He was head of these high school committees, and you discuss the budget. You discuss what programs you'd want to see. It was absolutely fantastic, and then they stopped it. And so when I inquired why they stopped it, they said, oh, wow, well, we don't have the finances, which it kind of was what better way to get the youth involved by, by discussing. Like It was a fantastic idea absolutely. They, they had back then. And it was, it was to the point that where we said, oh, we, they don't have this program at the arena, or they don't have this program at Parkinson Rec Center, or why isn't this happening at the airport? And then you get the answer from the source, and then you may even go home to your parents and say, well, no, just a minute here, you're wrong. That's why they can't do it because of this. So it really entrenched, and I really would hope that they would in, yeah, get those, that youth involved in a meaningful matter. Well, based on the last election cycle, like, I mean, how many people did we have come out and vote? Not very many. And that doesn't seem to change much. So I think if we start earlier talking about the issues and how much impact, that's going to have a, a better chance at a better election turnout, at least. Oh, at well, least. Be, because and then when I worked at the regional district, I, I, I don't know what they call it now, but that was a career prep program. So you had to have so many hours in the community before you could graduate. I'm not sure what they call it now. So I would get, I worked in accounting, so the odd time I get a grade 12 accounting student uh, come in, and I'd say to the counselor, I says, tell them not to bring their lunch, because we'll buy them lunch. My boss said it was okay to buy them lunch, to so give them that whole experience of working. So I'd come over there, and accounting's not the most exciting thing in the world, but I would go over the budget with them. So then I would go over the budget, especially dog control, because they could relate to that. So, and they go, oh my God, there's a million and a half dollars spent on dog control? Yeah, and they go, oh my God, you know? <laughs> it's the way you present it to them. So then they kind of understood that you have to account for this to make the information meaningful. So I said to them, I said, uh, so what happens when the window gets broken at uh, the, the school? Well, school district fixes it, really. I said, so where's the school district got, get their money from? I don't know. Like, you know, a lot of the younger people don't realize. So I said, a window gets broken, and your parents are paying for it. And then you get into that discussion of what it, you know, what how the whole tax base. So then I had a debriefing with the school district, and it never went anywhere, but I think we should use it more. As I said to the, the school district people that were debriefing me, and I mentioned it to some uh, city councillors in the valley, I said, so if we have a problem, and I'll use the uh, busing as an example, get the grade 12 accounting or first-year college students Give them the access to all the information and get them to write solutions to how to fix the busing problem. And part of the deal is they must present it to council. Mm -hmm. so they, to give them that experience. Give them that experience because yeah. sometimes then they can understand, oh, we only got so much money. We have to have the walking distance three kilometers, not two. You know, So it gets some meaningful stuff. And I think we've got to do more of that. So that, that community engagement piece but basically what you're saying is is by starting early, it really started you on a path of just trying to figure out and navigate this this complexity, which is between city and who pays for what and that kind of thing. And I think that genuine understanding has given you more impact oh, of knowing how the things work. And the one thing that really helped me is I was student council president for Macleod High School. So that gave me kind of the basis how to, how to run stuff. But after I was always interested in history and and, and different things in, in the valley. So, you know, over the course of uh, uh, my time, uh, I was a treasurer of the Clone Centennial Museum, uh, was uh, involved, I did scouting for hockey because my kids were involved in hockey quite a bit. And one thing I do now is I'm a business development officer as a result of the relationship that I built back then for international call seams. And we built ice arenas around North America. But the, the, so this has led to a whole bunch of other stuff. In fact, I was, 
we, we had our fruit stand in Gordon. We were uh, selling cherries from another family friend, Christine Dendy. And she said one time, we would, every year we'd go for lunch and sort of catch up. And she said, you know, the, would you be interested, now that you don't have the fruit stand anymore, looking at our local sales? And I said, oh, in a minute. I know, I know the industry. So I started there. And then when she sold the operation to Jealous Fruits, David Gein said, would you want to stay on? Well, now I look, I look after their domestic sales at the plant at, by the airport and at the operation up uh, in East Kelowna. And it's a massive operation. Like that plant, that plant on the highway there, we sort 36,000 pounds an hour. Like it's it's a massive operation, so it's pretty exciting. Where the in in the uh, late July, beginning of August, the Okanagan Valley is the only place in the world you can get sweet cherries. So there's a real story to be told, and uh, so you know that's kind of exciting. And then uh, I got appointed to the um, West Bank First Nations Economic Development Commission, which is it's fantastic. It's it's they're going concern they're you know, their own self-government. It's just amazing what they're doing over there. So I'm pretty excited to be uh, part of that. And then... Um, well, then I saw the Business Excellence. Right, and, and that's because I sit on the board of the Uptown Rutland <laughs> Business Association. <laughs> and then you were mentioning another appointment. Yes, I got, I got appointed to the... Well, I had to run for election on this one. Uh, the Board of Directors of the Italian Chamber of Commerce. We have 40 offices around the world that are governed from Italy because they really want to trade, especially with Canada. There's a real emphasis because Italy wants to trade with Canada. So we facilitate if a company from Canada wants to do trade in Italy and if a company from Italy wants to do trade over here. So because of the connections we have in those two countries, we can make good connections because that happened a couple times where a company was interested in locating here. So I made some phone calls and introduced this company to somebody in in the Okanagan and they wouldn't they would have hard to make that initial contact because sometimes in Europe anywhere in Europe Chamber of Commerce are big deals even more so than here so uh what happens is they they uh they have faith that if the Chamber of Commerce is recommending somebody that it's it's a good person you're vouching for them yeah you're vouching for them so that's that's uh uh, pretty exciting. And I also do business development for West Manufacturing, an aluminum and steel, a steel fabricator. But when I look at the the body of work that is Dom, so you you've had this you know this wonderful legacy yep. in town and everything else, and and say it's like a big jigsaw puzzle. It seems to be a, a bit interconnected. Like oh. I mean, one you know helps the other, and and vice versa. And and it seems like that's who you are, which is you know, a bridge, a conduit for a number of different things and, that happen through the and, community. And I think that's a good way to put it because I also served as vice president of the Kelowna Chamber, uh, served on some committees for the Greater West Side Board of Trade because uh, West Manufacturing is located on the West Side. So it, it's given me the opportunity, and I try to follow local local uh, events as much as possible, and I go to council meetings. I've been to Summerland, Lake Country, Peachland, try to follow what goes on in the valley. And that's given me the opportunity when you go to these meetings is to actually meet the owner of the property. You get a feel for the how the developments are coming. So if another if a developer comes in from another city, I can sound as knowledgeable as anybody on what's going on. What I've always appreciated about you is your uh, is the respect for history that you have. Oh. Because I do think that, you know, obviously history does repeat itself and we try not to repeat certain parts right. of history. But I find that you're that linkage that really helps people connect the dots for why land is is the way it is or why it's zoned a certain way. Like you have that that mindful perspective that I find so interesting. And and I'm guilty of the fact that I haven't dove into the Okanagan history as much as I should, because I think that would make more decisions, you know, based on on history and and then again it has that gravity to it well totally and and i'm on the board of directors of the okanagan historical society <laughs> well, <laughs> you, had, you had a spare 15 minutes yeah you know so but i really value history because a lot of times and i'll use this example where i thought my grandfather was out to mars when he was still alive but he the farms are in ben bolin where donald ray is now that was all around pony farms uh so he always said, don't plant anything till the snow's gone on Little White. Because if you stand on Ben Bolin and you look up, you can see Little White. 
So uh, to the, I guess it would be southeast. So anyhow, I thought, oh, man, this Italian guy, my grandfather's really like, really? <laughs> so then over time, you start watching it. It didn't matter what happened to the weather forecast. If there was snow in Little White and you put the seeds in the ground, it was too cold to germinate. And they never germinated. So I followed that as a rule, thinking, you know, that my grandfather, you see, I told you so, I told you so, <laughs> that that would be. But that's where, that's where history really um, adds to the d- discussion. And I, I sit on the Agricultural Advisory Committee for the city of Kelowna, too. And sometimes, <laughs> of course you do. <laughs> sometimes I bring some historical pr- pr- perspective to why somebody wants to do something with their property. Mm-hmm. Now, I've lost some friends over it because our committee said no you can't take your land out but that i was i felt justified enough in my decision i would stand by it that was for the betterment of of what it is because without uh the agricultural uh, land land reserve certainly in the okanagan in parts of the lower mainland there'd be no wine industry here it would be all subdivided so but the what i say to people is uh the local government can help protect the land, the municipal governments, and the provincial and federal governments have to protect the industry. So they got to work better together to to preserve that that culture. Because uh, without food, there's there is no high tech industry. There's no. nobody alive. So what's interesting about that thought process, and I want to go down this rabbit hole with you because yeah. I I know that you do have that historical perspective. So I. I have many different discussions with a lot of different guests yep. on the show about the agricultural land reserve and and about how, you know, we're in a housing crisis where rents have skyrocketed, we have inflation, we have people, you know, living along the rail trail, we have yep. homelessness everywhere. And can it be alleviated if we were to able to to take some of that land uh, out of the agricultural land reserve? Now, I want to I want to temper that with the fact that the other side of that is that food security that we all understand and, and appreciate way more now after that U- Ukraine conflict started. Right. We have this, it's really a balance, and I think that's the key. And that's why I love the Okanagan so much is when I drive from <laughs> Benvolen I know. to the Mission, there's oh. all this green space everywhere. And when I first moved here, I went, "What is going? why is it so disconnected? But then... That's part of the joy of living here is is driving along these green swaths of of land. Well, yeah. so so for me, you you are right on that that razor's edge of 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 seeing progress because you're on development on on the one side, but on the other side, you have that jealous fruits. You have this you have yeah. this other side. So you are one of those guys that I I'm so curious to find out your thoughts on where we should go. What it what does the future look like well, for here, Kelowna? Here's what I I say to people that bring up that this thought process of our, our information that we're sharing today is uh, if you if you look at Europe, they they value food in Europe way more than we do here. Do you see them taking ag land out of production? There are a lot of people like in Italy's like three times Canada's population yeah. and they grow lots of stuff. But what they've done is they value land and they value the food. What we have to do here is do the same thing. So if it means maybe going up a little bit, but in saying that, not every family with three kids wants to live in a condo, right? So you have to appreciate that. But we don't, we can do stuff like, I remember when Orchard Park came in, that was a big controversy on some of the best, uh, you know, vegetable land over over the, the course over there. But I think in cases like that, they could have sh- shortened the footprint by building two stories rather than one. Mm. For retail, when you go to some big malls, there, a lot of them are, are are two stories, right? And when they, uh, gotta be careful how I say this. Would they have? They've had some subdivisions that have been presented by developers. Wasn't in Agland, wasn't in the ALR, and they said no because there was an in, there was lots of inventory of uh, lots. Well, I don't. I disagree with that. And and some of these fringe areas that they they could have that weren't in the ALR. And I'll use stuff like Kirshner Mound and a few of those developments that wouldn't have stopped the, the spread so much. And what we have to do is we have to take a lesson from around the world and also even, even in Alberta. When Calgary builds a subdivision, and they got lots of land there, so they will make sure that that subdivision, the only way it will give you approval on that subdivision, it could be a 1,000 lots, is you have to have a commercial 
know to that. Like usually when you go into those different communities in Calgary, there's a gas station, a grocery yes. store. So when they built like Crawford Estates, the people the people said, we don't want a commercial development there. Oh, my God. Like now people got to drive like 10 miles to go get a quart of milk. So that's where the, the local governments should say, no, you have to put this in for a carbon footprint. But even like Crawford Estates, probably the right place for a subdivision because it was a gravel pit and an old sawmill. Mm-hmm. So, you know, those are the type of things that we should that, that we should facilitate. And also new farming methods allow you to go higher higher density of, of uh, stuff. But in, in, in saying that, there's, I understand that some pieces of land doesn't make any sense to be in the agricultural land reserve. I get that. But I've made it, when some people have come to, to say, take land out or whatever, I use this example. In the flat area of Ben Volan, there's four or 500 acres of land that's irrigated by irrigation ditches on Burns Road, Gordon, all over, right? And the farmers uh, pump out of that to irrigate their farms. It was a really cheap way to provide water. But when I got the city to map it out for me once, all these irrigation ditches amount to about 27 acres of unproductive land. Really? So if you take, let's say you had a piece of property that was close to uh, an existing industrial or commercial development, why not say to the developer, you bring pressurized city water to all these farms, you can get rid of those irrigation ditches, and now the farmer can plant five or six feet along his whole farm, and you get rid of the water licenses on Mission Creek that date back to the 1800s. So like, for example, Black Mountain has to preserve water for some of that flatland before they take the water, because the water license of those people, and then you get rid of a, a fish issue too, right? But then as some of those orchards that are on these on these ditches, if there's a little bit of drift, it goes in that water and goes into Okanagan Lake. So now you, you, you've gotten rid of an of a environmental issue and you've realized that maybe this land is, is not, you know, it's probably good farmland, but you're replacing it with just as good or better farmland. Mm. And I think that's it, that that's the balance that we're trying to strike on every deal is trying to make sure that we're not effectively taking whatever we take out, we replace it with more. But see, the, the one thing too, me and a good friend of mine, we went to Hawaii with our wives and our wives were mad because we spent the whole day with the Deputy Secretary of State of Agriculture for this, <laughs> the state, state of Hawaii. We spent the whole day. We were only supposed to be gone for an hour. But, but you were giddy. You were giddy about it, I'm that's sure. That's right. So what, what they, they have their own marketing department within their agricultural department and they they market all the stuff not just the apple guys marketing apples and the cherry guys marketing cherries so you know uh, my 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 thought process is thinking if we had a marketing department within our ministry of agriculture that marketed it and also uh like we have uh, we manage fish we manage water we manage forestry but we don't manage food production and I'll give you an example. Like it's 90% of the garlic we use in Canada is imported from China. And we grow, yeah, we grow the finest garlic in the world. So why isn't some of those alfalfa fields that are in the middle of town growing alfalfa, they should be encouraged to grow garlic or some other thing that we don't, we don't grow enough of in Canada. And all the chefs you talk to, they love the, the Canadian garlic. So, you know, there's that, and there's kind of like, I don't think there's, don't think there's anybody left in the province of BC now that plants the silver skin onions. There's somebody in Manitoba. We grow a gazillion of them, <laughs> and everybody uses them. So there's there's those type of industries that could make some of this property that's fairly expensive uh, uh, usable to to possibly uh, uh, make a living. And I and I don't know why we don't encourage. This is where I think the marketing part comes in from the Ministry of Agriculture is the fact there's no sweet potatoes growing in, in British Columbia. How many restaurants you go to, you see sweet potato fries or yam fries? <laughs> They're everywhere. Yeah. So, so we can grow those? Yes. Okay. Because I think part of it is maybe it's a lack of knowledge that we, we can or, or is it possible? I mean, I, I don't know why that is the case because, I mean, you're right. I go into these restaurants. I, I well, love those. Well, here, here's, here's what I'm thinking. I probably get a call once a month. Because the provincial government, I forget which government a few years ago, they got rid of their extension services. 
which was like a help desk for farmers. So if you could phone them up, you had five acres, and they would say, oh, the land's good for this. It was free of charge. Now there's, they cut it out. Oh, no. And, and what they should have done is they should have kept that because it helped food production. Mm-hmm. With minimal cost, because there was no office, well, office space needed, but the guy just went out and visited these people. So I go once a month. Sometimes I get phone calls, what should I plant? And I give them some ideas. Oh, never thought about that. Or, you know. Well, I, I call it the uh, the hotline to Dom line. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, part of it, though, is, and I, I just think of this, and, and generally speaking, we, we're not kind to government on this program. Yeah. But one of the things that is interesting is, say there was somebody that was a wonderful information source that was part of that extension, because you have to talk to a live person, yeah. I, I would think. When that person leaves or when we have that, you know, this massive migration of, of aging workers who leave the workplace, who take all that experience and knowledge with them, the government went, well, we can't, we can't replace that knowledge. So we're just going to take it online. That's exactly what they do. And, and, and that's what I mean, though, is, and well, it's cost savings. It's a bunch of things. But we can't fundamentally, because you can't put anybody in that chair because it would take somebody like a dom to say, no, no, you need garlic or sweet potatoes or, or whatever. Yeah. Or whatever. And, and the other part of it, too, is I would imagine, and I'm just thinking about farming, fertilizer, water, like all of these cycles of, of the sun, the microclimates. Like, I mean, there's a lot going on with farming. So to in order to recommend the right crop, you know, for distance-wise yeah. and yield and everything else, you're going to really need to understand everything involved with that. And that's why that's why you become more invaluable because you can actually scope out, here's what you're going to need on a maintenance level just to, to look after that crop. Yeah, there, there was a case of uh, a family uh, from Los Angeles that I can't remember their names now. They moved up to Lake Country, and they have some farm gate sales out there now, not knowing anybody. Somehow or another, they got names. So I gave them some suggestions. I met them on site, gave them some suggestions. I don't know whether they followed it or not, but they were so happy that I gave them some suggestions on, 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 what, to, on, on what to do because I think we owe it to... Uh, people we owe it to society to try to use everything the best that we can uh and and i i don't think uh, under a number of different governments that they did that there was a professor i went to i can't, can't something out of Kotlin college out of chilliwack or university whatever they call that university there he he proposed that like if you go to washington state who looks after their extension services the university really they get a grant from the government to do that so i thought what better thing so i was at this thing was talking and i said you know obviously i thought ubco would be a classical because they cover the whole province and they got a faculty of education well this kent molenick i think is his name he prepared a paper to the provincial government some time ago that Kotlin college would provide that extension service to the province and didn't get to the time of day with them. And I'm thinking, what better? They got all the research people. <laughs> so it, so they, they're going to they're gonna have this program, and, and you get research scientists. You get students that are in agriculture that love this, trying to find the best way to do it. And they didn't really give him the time of day. On this very program, and thank you for opening the door for our little favorite corner of the uh, the Rick Rick and Friends talk show, which is hammering the government. No, but <laughs> but, but Sam Samadar, uh, airport director, was uh, was on a, a committee that created um, basically a COVID handbook to keep people safe during the pandemic. Right. They had countless hours of research. He says, Rick, this is, again, what we do every single day with every single passenger as we look after them. So we submitted this this step-by-step guideline for the federal government to say, don't shut it down. Let's just work within the confines of what we've created. Nothing. Like not even <laughs> not even a response. And he said, and you can I can hear his teeth grind when he was on the program. And and it was all based on the fact that just fundamentally not listening to an innovative idea that would potentially have far reaching effects. And 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 your program, which I find is just ingenious, it wouldn't be embraced because that that to <laughs> me would be just a common sense reality of here's people that can help us with food yep. production, help us with food security and and it's a great conduit because going back to your further thoughts about connecting government as well as the high school yeah and getting people engaged like 
it covers all those bases and they can't see that. It's killing me. I know, and that's that's really frustrating. So I've done uh, lots of lobbying for, for different things as an individual, not because a few years ago I was on the board of directors of the BC Fruit Growers Association. So I had to be a little careful to say this is my personal opinion. So I went to uh, the uh, provincial budgetary meeting, had a meeting. So I thought, hmm, how can I get my emphasis of, of small lot farming in that? So what I did was we had a fruit stand in Gordon. I brought, there was like five people on this committee from different parties. I brought a bag of fresh peas and I gave a bag to each one on the committee. They weren't even listening to what I was saying. They were eating these peas. <laughs> <laughs> but the point was that, that so much of, of what we do was on the food. And my point is this, those peas came from a small lot farming. So somehow or another, there, there's got to be brainstorming session of, of how can we do the small lot farming. And I'll, I'll, there's a number of examples of, of different things that we could grow over here. Uh, and even the spice in that kind of market. Uh, the Italians call it Italian oregano, but it's, it's very similar to thyme, the seed that you could buy. People, oh, I love your Italian oregano. It's just thyme. <laughs> but the point of it is, is that you don't see acres of that growing over here. So what I'm saying is we grow that, we grow the Italian, the cooking parsley, the flat leaf parsley, that goes great over here. Do you see fields of it? And every, every restaurant uses it. So how are we not cultivating, you know, a pun word, cultivating that industry and cultivating because supply becomes a big issue. Because I know a few years ago when uh, we were growing lots of peppers and there was another uh, packer over there. So companies like Cisco and Gordon Food Services, if you had enough supply, they would buy from you. Mm-hmm. But it's just you got to have a certified packing plant, and we don't grow enough of that thing. So why aren't we cultivating? Like we grow some, we grew lots of peppers. We grow the finest peppers that you can imagine. We grow the finest eggplants. And the small eggplants that the Italian culture and the Lebanese culture, oh, my God. They go crazy over them, but we're not cultivating it commercially. And, you know, there should be the same thing. Years ago, I think the last tomato cannery closed in Penticton in the 80s because they said they couldn't be. All, Almer, Almer was the company. But if you went to, if you had enough supply of tomatoes, we grew lots of tomatoes. I mean, our family did acres and acres. Is that if you had Okanagan-grown tomato sauce, you don't tell me your restaurant's going to say, oh, these tomatoes came from that field down the road. You know, <laughs> yeah. like... It, it, farm it, to table. Farm to table. But you have to have that commercial component of where the economy is a scale, or not just, you know, somebody in a small kitchen selling at the farmer's market. That's not what you... No, it has to be on a larger scale sustainable so that you have a little bit of consistency there. You know, for income and and basically all those expenses. Because a, l- a lot of times, because I do work for Jealous Fruits, and we're a large... Like I say, a large cherry Oh, it, it's massive, yeah. But the thing about it is you have to have that industrial agriculture because that feeds some of the research that happens. Right. So, you know, but in saying that, and that's why the cooperative started, started because there was a lot of small farms in Cologne, tomatoes and like we, there was cantaloupe canned. It was everything you can imagine. So uh, my grandfather and I would go by buggy from Ben Volen, Ellis Street, to sell their... Uh, their tomatoes that were canned. So that cooperative thing could work for, for saying, okay, do we have enough tomatoes? But we have to encourage those, those young people to, to somehow or another encourage uh, them to grow that. And I'm not saying by subsidies, but you have to give them, I like the word incentives better. Tax incentives. Or maybe. something. Because if you take a look in, in Europe, or even if I said, if the government said to... Uh, uh, you know, some of these farms, if you buy a new tractor that's less carbon footprint, you get a tax credit or something. Right. And it's something to, to help you. And I even offset. So in the, if you go buy the cherry orchards now, they have these spinners irrigation stuff that produce the, uh, spin the water. They use about 25% less water than the conventional aluminum sprinkler pipes. All those farmers, they don't even get a thank you from the general public or the government for saving water. And they do. And then when you look at if an orchard's managed properly, they don't overwater. So, so, and they don't even get a thank you. They, they should get some sort of tax credit. Mm-hmm. But they don't even get a letter saying thank you. But if it was an industrial thing, if it was a, 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 a sawmill or something that reused the water, everybody would say thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> There's hypocritical. Somebody that's saving water. 
Okay, I have so many questions for you, uh, Dom, but I'm going to take a quick break here. Uh, thank you again for listening to the program. A uh, couple of sponsors we got to mention. Uh, D6 Print Studios prints anything and everything. They have large format. Large. Huge. Not as big as Jealous Fruits, but pretty big. <laughs> okay. Uh, and the other thing is Kelowna Now has lots of news. Uh, morning tonight, you need to go on there and click on all the latest news because they have it. So we'll be back in a minute with more Dom. Okay, we're back with more Dom. And uh, so, Dominic, you have this uh, this wonderful experience. And, and again, the, the list is too long. Like, we only have the show for an hour. So I'd love to go back into all the things that you do. But one of the things that's very interesting to me is is organic farming. Uh, I have a friend. She's she's wonderful. She loves working in the earth. It just it gives her peace. It gives her tranquility. So she has this berry farm that is situated right next to a farm that you know I've is non organic is non organic and they and they they drive along on the tractor with a hazmat suit on and they spray and you know there's she's not under a cover of of anything so so i would assume that that stuff flies over to her farm which which makes her angry to no end without a doubt and and so how do you, how do you deal how do you manage that because you have on the one side you know obviously a maybe it's a commercial production i don't know and then on her side she's a small farm she's she's doing the best she can with with the limited resources but it just seems to be a, a horrible disparity, I guess. Well, sometimes a lot of the farmers now uh, uh, that are spraying, some of them are spraying with organic certified sprays. So you, you, it's really tough to comment on them because some organic farmers, like in the cherry industry, they have to spray for the worms. Sure. So they spray with organic certified sprays. Okay. So sometimes there's not a, there, there may not be an issue unless you have the discussion with the farmer or what they're spraying for. And a lot of times, if you're respectful of your farmers, that they say there might be some drift, there's a re-entry date. So if you spray with the spray, you maybe can't go there for three days back in the orchard. So after that, there's no residue of the spray. That's why they have the re-entry dates. So there may not be any concern. But with regard to the spray, I think there's only one or two farms in Kelowna area that have this. Uh, but in Washington State, it, it's in California, it's pretty good. So what they do is when they spray their, their orchards or whatever, so the leaf is negative charge, okay? So when the spray comes out of the tank, they charge that with a positive charge. So there's no, there's no drift, because it only hits it only hits the negative charge, so you could go right on the line and be no drift into your neighbors. Interesting. <laughs> so wow. okay. So this is where the encouragement of local cities, if they have that kind of conflict, somebody should be there saying that okay, if this is a way to eliminate that issue with the organic and non-organic, then why isn't somebody from the government? saying, okay, if this is an issue and we want to respect the organic guys, then we're going to give you incentives to buy that sprayer with the electric charge. Okay. So the, the, then you, you still maintain the agriculture component, but you respectfully, there, there's a way that you can, you can, uh, you know, uh, talk to your neighbor about it, and, and there's ways you can eliminate a lot of that stuff. So it sounds like if you have an idea of, and, and again, going back to innovative farming practices, if you don't know that, and again, would that, what function of the government could that be? Or is that a function of the government? Or is that, you know, it, could there be an entity that actually is a conduit instead of, you know, firing well, this up Dom line? Yeah, <laughs> this, is, this is where I think that if the universities had the extension services. Yes, they could, they could, because they're an independent third party, not part of government, they could say, how can we make this urban real conflict? Because we run into that all the time on the Ag Committee, this, you know, putting, buffering this urban, urban real conflict. So uh, that situation has got to be addressed on a more uh, important basis on the fact that there's a way that you can help eliminate that urban real conflict. But it takes some planning from somebody that can give you all the data. Mm -hmm. Because, uh, like, for example, there was one issue uh, uh, where they uh, were a piece of property they were wanting to take out of the agricultural land reserve. So they hired this agrologist, and they said, oh, you can't grow grapes, you can't grow apples. And then sometimes you shouldn't say what you think. You should think before you talk. <laughs> you know how that happens? <laughs> oh, I do it all the time. So I said to this agrologist, I said, so... 
what's the definition of a cow? She said, well, it's a cow. I said, oh, is that an agricultural commodity? So trying to say you could raise cattle on this thing, which is still an agricultural, but you couldn't grow any fruit trees. So because we need a cattle industry, so it's being a little sarcastic, but the point of it is, is a lot of these analysis done by some of these professionals, they're only doing it through a very thin very, filter. Very, very thin. And it's just like, if, oh, maybe in 10 years ago now, we did an agricultural tour. And we're going to hopefully get that going next year again, which we invited the media and all the politicians. So we, we, we took into account uh, in the central Okanagan from Oyama to Peachland that there's a cattle industry. People said there's no cattle industry. At that time, there's over 10,000 head of cattle in the central Okanagan. <laughs> Because you don't see them, you see they're they're grazing in the bush or they're sure. And then we brought them to a feedlot. There was a feedlot right behind the Benvolen Heritage Church that had been there for I don't fifty years. It was run so good, nobody even knew it was a feedlot there. That's amazing. I know. And then so we couldn't. Then the owner of the property, they didn't want to take the tour there. So then we went to a feedlot in Black Mountain, that the farmer had two hundred head of cattle in this feedlot, but in the summertime, he grazed them in the bush. Nobody even knew that the 200 cattle were there. So if they're run properly and they're over there, it's not an issue. Right. So it seems like if, again, it goes back to knowledge and experience, I think. And so now, because you haven't thrown your hat in the ring for any, (laughs) for any council position or anything else. So how how do we get around this? Like, what is the solution going forward? Because I, I really do believe this is a, a bigger issue than people give it credence oh, for. I, and I, I, I think we need to get it out in, in front of people. And, and you know, this podcast is, is, is part is of one that. Via, is, is one. Is one. Yeah. But we needed, you know, we need a lot more people at, at policy level to really figure this out and wrap their heads around that food security, the innovative uh, farming practices, how taxation and tax incentives and grants can all work together. Maybe, like you said, utilizing secondary institutions. I mean... There's a whole gamut of ideas that could be utilized, but it doesn't seem to be gaining any traction, or at least in in my humble opinion, it's not getting as much traction as it should. Well, I I totally agree with you, but sometimes, and I'll use Costco as an example, um, how the general public have influence on food production. So for the longest time, you go there, you never find local cherries or anything in Costco, or apples or pears. Through consumer going into Costco saying, how come you don't have Okanagan pears? I, I drive by the pear orchard every day and I can't buy their pears here. So through that, they, they're allowing Costco to buy regionally now. So through consumer pressure, if we lobby the governments, and sometimes I've made to the MLAs, I said, I said uh, uh, in my latest proposal to them is, I don't care whether you're in power or not in power, you have a separate provincial ad hoc committee to brainstorm ideas like this. So then, especially if you're in the opposition, then you can say, okay, we got these plans to do this and plans to do that because there's so much opportunity. And then uh, I'm a type 2 diabetic, so when I went to diabetic school, they said, well, how do you buy healthy food year-round? And I looked at the 10 people that were in the class. I said, it's called a greenhouse. Oh, it's too much to heat them. I said, really? I said, so this is my plan. I don't know if it economically would work, but... Fort St. John's got lots of sunshine in the wintertime, right? Fort St. John does. Yeah. Okay. It's got a lot of sunshine, but it's pretty cold in the wintertime, so you have to provide heat. they got lots of natural gas there, but that gets expensive. So my idea was that if somebody was going to do a $20 million huge greenhouse to provide lettuce, tomatoes, and that year-round, but they have to give them the heat. So my idea is if the provincial government could facilitate a wood pallet plant up there, that, that could say, we'll give you the fuel for nothing if you're going to invest $20 million in greenhouses. And they establish this wood pallet plant that recycles no good wood. Is that, that's one way you could, you could do the greenhouses. And I don't know all the inner works, but I mean, those are the type of things should be, that I, I think we should uh, uh, look at. And working closer with the First Nations on, on some of their sustainable for food groups, for the chiefs and all that. Because a lot of people now, when I, I see people say, oh, I got to go back to the land. Well, the First Nations have been doing that for 40,000 years. <laughs> it's nothing new. <laughs> so, you know, th- there's a lot of things that we could work together. Because you look at what they did with uh, Hatchery and Penticton, they totally re- 
you got the fish all back over here. So why can't we work with with possibly uh, closer with them on a lot of this research of some of the stuff that grows here, hardy, some of the berries and stuff that grow here are hardy. So uh, commercially grow them. Mm-hmm. And my idea is sometimes it's hard to grow some of those old varieties from the seeds because they just don't come. But we have this great company in Kelowna called Agroforest Technologies that produces trees from tissue culture. So they take a little bit of the tree and they start propagating the plants. It's a it's a fantastic operation. So that way you you can emulate the the old varieties of, of berries and that in in the uh, in Canada. So let's just back this up a bit let's say i'm looking at a property right now i'm not but yeah. let's say i was up on uh june springs road and there's and i was you know yep. i think we all do this we all look at real estate yep. acreages and all that kind of stuff now i i look at this property it's it's 11 acres i'm not sure how much is is farmable yep. uh because i don't think there's anything on there right now and, and but to me i would love to grow food i would love yep. to you know, be part of a solution, I guess. So where, where would somebody like me start? Who's, who's, you know, it's, it's private. I mean, would, could part of it be sold or, or given away or something? Probably. But where do I find, you know, I don't know Dom. Yeah. So, so what, where do I go? What do I do? Does the real estate agent help me? Does, does the Agricultural Land Commission help? Like, who helps me figure this out? Right, right now, there's really nobody you can go unless you hire a private consultant. See, that's sad to me. Totally. And that's why the provincial government owes it to, because there's some fantastic people out there that have got a lot more technical knowledge than I do, you know, what to do. But when you look at saying, doing a study of what don't we produce or what what don't, and I'll give an example of a company that's fantastic uh, that went back to where agriculture started in the Okanagan. This company out of Quebec, uh, VegPro, and if you Google them, they're massive, they bought 800 acres in Coldstream, and they grow 800 acres of lettuce outside. The leafy green stuff. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> and, and and they're getting like seven bucks a head right now. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, they don't grow the head lettuce. It okay. Be just the leafy ones you get in the package. Oh, okay. Yeah. So they can they get four or five pickings a year. So they built an 80,000 square feet packaging facility. And these guys have a packaging facility in Quebec, Florida, and Coldstream. So they... That's so, just amazing. I know. So... That type of, of stuff, when you look, so when I talked to these guys, I got a hold of these guys, and I said to the local representative, and I said, you realize that Coldstream is where the tree fruit industry started, but even, even Armstrong, they grew lots of celery and lots of all this kind of Armstrong. So we've got a big history, and it's just like when they put the Trans-Canada Railway through, Ashcroft became the potato capital of Canada. They supplied all the potatoes for the railway. <laughs> So, and they got some big farms in Ashcroft, but I, I think we got to go back to, to that being self-sufficient of, 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 of what we do. Uh, but saying that, like, where would you go? It's kind of, it's kind of hit and miss right now of, of what to do because there's no central database, but that's where I think the universities or Quatlin College or Polytechnical, uh, whatever the correct term is, is, is that could be a huge a huge vehicle for saying, how do we get more food production? So is it, is it that uh, we use a million pounds of sweet potatoes? There's, there's going to be more money in sweet potatoes than we'd be growing apples. See, it's, it's interesting to me when you have a lot of the solutions are right there. If, if you are looking for them and right. if you are open to them, and I think that's what I find about this discussion is some of these I mean, these problems have been around for a long, long time. time. And and now all of a sudden, well, wait a second. If we connect institutions for one, yep. which is a a really a hub of learning. Totally. And a, and a hub of experience and knowledge. And and sometimes it's going to be one of those cases of we don't know the answer, but you know what? We can find out. Uh, Anactus. Uh, so yep. Kylie, Kylie Myra was just on the program, and she was talking about Anactus and how it went so far based on their innovative practice of taking the apples that fallen off the trees repurposing them and actually creating this sustainable company and that to me is that ingenious innovation that the okanagan is is really becoming known for and if we just seem to just incubate more of that i think we're going to get 
even more exponential learning happening and more solutions. Because really what we're talking about now, there's solutions, but they're they're probably right in front of us. We just don't see them. And, and, and sometimes you need a, a champion of the cause to, to try to... That's you. <laughs> that is you, my friend. <laughs> to, 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 I appreciate that. To facilitate, uh, you know, uh, some of this uh, discussion, it's just like... If you can believe it or not, being Italian heritage, we do use olive oil. <laughs> I've, I've only heard rumors. Yeah. So anyhow, there's a fellow on Vancouver Island that's got four acres of olive trees growing. Really? Yeah. So I don't know if he's at the stage of producing olive oil, but there, there's lots of different, lots of different. What's with you? What's with Italians and fig trees, by the way? Oh, they're the greatest fruit. I eat them. I eat the fresh figs you get from California. I, I could. I, I eat them all day long. Because I, I've heard, you know, there's there's uh, an elderly uh, Italian who the, wraps up his fig tree every the, year, yeah. and and it's it's a big thing. It's a big. It's a big experience. Takes his whole garage up. Yeah, <laughs> to store. <laughs> it's, it's just huge. But but the fig is is like. It's it's next to godliness. Like I mean, it's it's next level for Italians. Yeah, because they're very high in fiber. They're very healthy fruit to eat, right? But when you look at what's been done around the world, we went to Arizona on, on a trip and we had a tour of, of uh, this place that made date milkshakes. Absolutely fat, best milkshake ever out of dates. But what they were telling us the story of the date industry in in Arizona was it was started in the Second World War. They imported imported the plants from the Middle East. Because they, that's is nutritious. Those dates are nutritious food for the the army guys. Okay. So you know, if we look around the world of of, of different foods in, in in different climates, is there something out there that we can grow? It's just like you know, we're starting to grow kiwis in the Okanagan. Uh, some small farm, some small guys in their backyards have got pistachios. So I, I invested in a in a company years ago, and there were. Uh, lentils. Oh yeah. Oh, that that big. They, and they were extracting the protein out of the lentils to build protein shakes and you yep. know different kinds of uh, variety of foods. And and unfortunately, they they went private, of course. But it was one of those things where the technology around food and being able to create sustainable sources for third world countries and you know it, let's face it, it's it's a worldwide thing. Right. Um, it became a really interesting discussion topic for for me because. It's that food security, and and again, it's that innovation with with something so basic, essential, such as food. I know, and 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 there's there's some things where, as Canadians, we don't like to brag as much as if you were from our cousins down south, but like we're number one or two in the world in low bush blueberry production. We're we're number one in cranberry. We're number one in oat production. We're number one in maple syrup. We're the latest place in the world to have sweet cherries. And the Spartan apple was developed in Summerland. <laughs> so th- there's some things. No, it, Summerland's a leading research station in the world for sweet cherries. Sorry for di- digressing over here. But if you were in the United States, how big would that sign on the highway be saying we're number one in the world? Like, what's wrong with being proud of what you do? We do have, we do have, it's a Canadian thing, you know. Uh, but it, it's very true. And I, I think, again, we just need to keep, uh, having this conversation. So, uh, Dom, I, I could talk to you all day. Thank you so much for coming oh, on the program. Thank you for talking about agriculture. And I always say to people, uh, never talk bad about a farmer with your mouth full. <laughs> well said, sir. Thanks so much. Thank you.